The Stratford Show, bringing retail into the future. Hello and welcome to The Stratford Show. I'm your host, Ang Naya. I'm also the CEO of Stratford, where our vision is the same as the vision for this show, to bring retail into the future. Every episode, I'll be joined by a guest who is leading or innovating in some part of the retail spectrum, from design to manufacturing to marketing and even to sales. We'll discuss trends, learnings and ideas and really try to figure out what the top performers in your field are doing. Along the way, we'll discover some lessons you can apply to your own career and hopefully even have some fun. All right, let's do it. So hey, I'm, I'm joined here by uh, Alex Ginoff. Um, Alex, thank you for joining me. Sure thing, Ang. Uh, my pleasure. Um, so, well, yeah, welcome to the Shropfit Show. And as I mentioned just before we started, the, the purpose of the Shropfit Show is to bring retail into the future. And, and the way we're doing that is we're inviting guests um, about every fortnight to come on the show and, and talk about their area of expertise. And we were talking earlier about how there's silos which occur in, in all industries, but especially in retail where you get marketing and sales and product and um, they, they all are focused on their own thing and there's innovations and there's lots of interesting things happening there, but often that often we do a poor job or we can definitely do a better job of, of sharing that across and, and making sure that knowledge is, is shared. So yeah, th- thank you for joining me and um, I guess let's get into it. So perhaps we start with telling me a bit about your role. Um, I know at a high level what you do, but perhaps go into a little bit more detail about your role at Zappos and um, yeah, let's, let's start there. All right, uh, sure thing. So at Zappos, I've been with Zappos almost seven years now, um, and my role is to, at a very high level, help the organization understand customers as um, as people on a deeper psychological level. So I head up customer research, customer experience research, um, which is basically incorporates a multitude of methods um, that range from interviews to surveys to usability research, uh, all, all kinds of research um, mm-hmm. that, again, have to do with more understanding what makes people tick, what makes our customers tick. We do have at Zappos a very uh, awesome uh, data science and analytics team, and they handle all the hard data, all the big data. Um, I, I do not, um, I'm not an expert there, but um, I know enough to really respect them for what they do. This is the, the rocket science, what they do there. What we do is not rocket science, but uh, I think uh, the magic happens when our groups collaborate and really understand uh, on the one hand uh, what customers do and then on the other why they do it. Awesome. Interesting. And you mentioned you've got this this team of data scientists and analytics. Um, perhaps we, we zoom out a little bit and, and, and talk about empiricism versus rationalism and how that's how that's come into I guess user research sure just to, to clarify that um, the data science team is, is separate it's not uh, it's not it's not uh, you know part of my group they're, they're a group, different group um, oh, I see and you got so they have some insights they'll share with you but it's not necessarily always to do with customer research right customer research is a separate group from data science okay. And um, they, uh, I mean, speaking of uh, of silos, uh, we, we do have different groups within Zappos. But what we do is try to break down the silos between those groups and really work together and collaborate. Awesome. And and I know some of that is to do with your holacracy method, which I'm really interested to get into later on. Um, but yeah, sure. for now, for now, let's let's talk about um, empiricism and rationalism and and how that applies to customer research and how it's changed over time. Right. Uh, it's an interesting topic uh, near and dear to my heart because uh, I come from academic psychology. Um, you know, I have a degree in uh, ex- experimental social psychology and I've uh, learned quite a bit about empiricism and rationalism then. So it's a, it's a philosophical topic, right? It's basically how you know the world. And uh, Rene Descartes, uh, the, uh, the famous rationalist, would sit down and read a lot of books and use logic and... Uh, and that, that's how he would proclaim things like, uh, I think, therefore I am. Right? You, you cannot test that, that statement, really, to research. Mm-hmm. Because that's, a, that's a philosophical point of view. Um, and then to counter that, um, people like David Hume came along, and he's a very famous um, empiricist. 
and he would uh, ask the question, how do you know? So when somebody makes a statement, right, it's, uh, it's cold outside, let's say, how do you know? And uh, that question was, uh, became to be known as the, the wrecking ball of empiricism, as knowing that uh, any statement you, you make, then if you ask them, how do you know, then, it, you know, it forces the conversation to talk about a shared reality and, and ways to measure things and ways for two people to look at the same thing and agree. Mm-hmm. Is it day? Is it night? Right? If it's light outside, if we both see the same thing, then um, we agree on it. So um, that's the, the foundation of... Uh, then measuring, you know, uh, you know, the field of measuring things. So if you're talking about the concept of length, right, then uh, we come up with a simple tool like a meter to, to measure it. And then we both look at it and we agree and say, how do you know this, is, this object is that long? Well, because we use, the, we use the tool to measure it and we both agree. So that is the basis of empiricism. It's uh, it's try things, it's it's measure things, and um, and have people objectively agree on the same thing. That is easy when it comes to physical, you know, qualities like length and temperature. So we have tools for that. It becomes very interesting when we start talking about psychological concepts like emotion. Emotion is not a thing. Emotion is a is a construct, right? So then it becomes, it boils down to how you measure it. Then you may have disagreements. Then you have to agree on the way to measure it. And then um, um, that's where it becomes really interesting. And, and my, my field in, um, back in, in the day was um, individual differences and emotions and how you define emotions, how they get generated, how you measure them. Mm. So, so that's uh, I try to bring that knowledge to my uh, practical work uh, for different companies. Interesting. And so, if obviously we we move towards a very empirical system now, um, can we can we talk a bit about qualitative versus quantitative um, measurements? Because I understand they're both empirical. Or would you say one is rational? No, I'd say I'd say they're they're both empirical. If we mm-hmm. talk about measuring something if we talk about uh, researching something uh, we're in the realm of uh, empiricism rationalism would mean you read a ton of books right uh, go back to the, the greek you know philosophers and and then write a very logical argument right use logic and then if it if it kind of makes sense if you deduct one thing from another then you see what you say must be true that's mm. right Empiricism, then you come and say, how, well, how do you know? Right? How did you measure it? How did you define it? So qualitative and quantitative data, when it comes to data, um, I'm glad you asked because there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconception about that, um, especially in, um, I mean, in, in, in business circles, it's, it's easy to, to hear things like um, qualitative data is when you measure, when, when you have a small sample size, for example. And quantitative is when you have a lot of observations, but that's not the case. Qualitative has to do with, um, first of all, how you do the, the research and then how you use the observations. Qualitative data is, it can be observations, right? You observe people um, and then you come up with hypotheses or you come up with insights, right? So you, um, you come up with uh, explanations of why they behave the way they do. So, so what, what would be an example of, uh, and perhaps you're about to jump into it, but what would be an example? Yeah. So I can give you an example from one of our empirical research activities, which, which was a home visit, which is, kind of, which is a contextual inquiry or a, a form of ethnographic research where we not only talk to customers, but we visit them in their home. So we um, understand the context of their life and we see the, the objects and we see the, the clothes and uh, shoes in this case. We see their, their 
you know, the environment, uh, we'll see the apartment, the, the closets, right, and so on. So we visited this, this woman in the San Francisco area um, who used to be a model in the past and then she, all, she all then became a researcher. A very, uh, very bright woman. Um, and she said something that was pretty, pretty remarkable uh, that kind of changes the way you think. So she said uh, when we talked about how she picks what to wear on a certain day, she goes, um, she goes well, sometimes I, I kind of feel feel a little bit down in the morning and uh, then to improve my mood she goes I put on a, a, a piece of clothing that's pretty remarkable so people talk to me about this it starts a conversation and that improves my mood so you see how that's 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 a great insight because the way um, I thought about this before was that the way you dress matches your mood so if you're feeling depressed you're gonna wear black right you know but instead, what you said is, you know, I'm going to wear something to change that. Right? And so that's, a, that's an insight. That, and that insight is qualitative. So one person said it, it's valid for that person. Then the question is, well, okay, what do you do with it, right? You can, I can talk about it like it's a nice story. Right? Um, I can write about it and so on. But if you're a business, you want to make money from this insight. Then you have to say, well, if I have many customers, how many of them would agree with that or would take that up? And then you have to quantify that, that, that insight. So that was a qualitative insight that you use to generate hypotheses, to generate ideas, to explain something. And then if you want to quantify it, then you have to turn it into numbers. So quantification means turning anything into numbers. And again, it doesn't have the. It's a completely separate subject from the sample size. You can have qualitative observations with a thousand people, right? Or you can you can quantify the behavior of one person. Mm. Or then, if we, based on that insight, we write a similar question like, "How often do you wear something so that other people talk to you in the morning?" and then send it to a thousand people, and then get the responses yes no and turn them into numbers right yes one no zero there you have your quantitative information so you see qualitative information has to do with insights and ideas and hypotheses and uh, quantitative information has to do with numbers awesome that that was really comprehensive and i think they'll make it very clear for a lot of people um when we're talking about i guess measuring measuring a user and doing user research. I had a look at one of your slides and you had something called 360 views. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and how you paint a full picture of a customer? Because I think it's very easy for uh, companies who are perhaps starting off in customer research and, and don't have a fully fledged team such as Zappos. Um, maybe they'll do one area of research and, and get kind of focus on that and think it's the complete picture. Uh, but yeah, how do you make sure you don't get um, tunnel visioned in, in just one area? Because I mean, you could do one type of research and, and come to one conclusion, but had you done three or four more, you might have reached the very opposite conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, perhaps talk a bit about that. Sure. Thanks, Anna. That, that's a great question. Um, so I want to start off by saying that it doesn't have to do with the size of a team, right? It's, we have a very small team at Zappos in terms of customer research, but it's a capable team. And I, I think it starts with it starts with a mindset, and that, that mindset to me is – realize that customers are not numbers right and and understand customers as people and that's that's why we have separate teams we have the, the teams that deal with the numbers because that's what the business is based on numbers it's run on numbers that we're reporting numbers it's fine right you need to at that scale to run a business you need numbers mm. but to create um emotional connection with customers to to have customers become loyal to you, to talk about your business, to get these experiences. I think it's hard to do that if you don't understand customers as people. And, and then, first of all, start with that mindset and then um, ask yourselves how many, when is the last time you talk to customers? Right? You see clicks, right? The numbers are not customers. They're clicks, they're conversions, right? They're visits, 
their dollars or whatever currency, other currency. These are not people. So to understand people, you need to, I mean, you need to boil down your research to some kind of psychological research, if you will. You need to talk to them to understand their mindsets. Uh, when you do market segmentation, for example, the, the easiest forms of market segmentation, but in my mind, the, the most, the least actionable and the most silly ones are demographic segmentation, right? Where the insights basically are that rich people buy more stuff, right? That's a groundbreaking insight if you think about it. Right, then every every business will line up in front of the rich people's homes to, to get their business. Yeah. So th- that's the it's easy because it's so straightforward. You know, you can turn turn things into numbers easily. Men, women, age, then numbers, numbers, numbers. But then when it comes to um, to to mindset and attitudes and all those psychological characteristics. Um, more and more businesses are realizing that that's what motivates behavior. And that's why we have this very established and, and, and uh, well-known field of behavioral economics now that, that realizes that economics that's based on math and the numbers is not really realistic the way, the way, they, way humans behave. And humans are moved by emotion, by, by attitudes, by beliefs, and so on. So to bring it back to demographic segmentation you may have a lot of wealthy people because you know their share of wallet or whatever you know how you measure their wealth mm-hmm. but do you know how many of them have the mindset of being savers right or penny pinchers if you don't know that you're gonna send them an email say splurge right you can afford it right but what instead what you're gonna hear is you know unsubscribe delete i, I don't want to see that um I mean, again, in our research, for example, we've seen um, very interesting mindsets. For example, we've visited families and talked about um, to, to, to mothers, right, who shop for their kids but don't shop for themselves. And then it's, very, it's a very obvious strategy to say, why don't we just send them an email and say, buy yourself something nice, right? Well, what we found out was this concept of mummy guilt, which which we heard from 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 many people, mm. was that yeah, before I shop for myself, now that I have kids, everything goes to the kid, and I, I feel guilty if I shop for myself. You see now, if if you send an email that's oh, buy yourself something, right? Too, versus we understand that you know you you may want to buy something now, but. Uh, everything goes for the kid, right, and so on. Now and then, the, the person, will be, oh, you get me, right, and then mm. will be more open to try something. So that's the it's it's about empathy ultimately, right? It's um, the same thing when you did your application. If you say, oh, it's super easy, right? You just point and shoot, and they're like, well, no, it's not because X, Y, Z. Right, and then then you say, well, let let me let me help you. You know, it may not be easy, but I'll walk it through. Right, and then then it means that you empathize with that. So, so I don't know what I kind of lost track of the initial question. Right, I talked <laughs> no, too much. <laughs> that was that was good. That was good. All right. So, um, imagine I'm I'm a retailer who's listening to this podcast, and I'm like, wow, I really like what Alex is saying, and. You know, we've been too focused on Google Analytics, which which don't paint a full picture because it's it's pretty low fidelity information, right? Like you you don't get you basically you don't get the qualitative stuff coming through, and that's that's perhaps where some key insights can happen, like the one you just described. So, say I'm a retailer, and I'm like, all right, Alex, you've convinced me. I I want to have a more complete view of a customer. Um, how would you suggest they go about doing it? And and perhaps to paint your picture, maybe say they've got 30, 30 people in head office. So they might be doing something like 10, 10 to 50 million online. Um, so not a huge team. They're not going to have three user researcher people. Um, so, but they're like, we want to dip our toes. How would you suggest they get into it? Yeah, now I remember where I started from. Yeah, it was all about the using different methods. So if you start with that mindset of let's understand customers, then you're gonna you're gonna end up using different methods. Like you said, let's track the numbers. This is actually necessary which is the what, but let's understand the, the why too. And then you can do, again, it doesn't, the size of the, the, the team doesn't matter. You can have one person. 
but that person then will um, work together with the data scientists and the analysts to bring that insight of the why to the what. So then you can um, uh, you, you can start by doing a survey, which is is not a perfect tool, but it's the best tool we have to understand what's in people's minds at scale, right? Currently, then you can do even more in-depth uh, understanding by doing one-on-one -on -one interviews, where where you talk to a person and then you follow up with questions and you follow a certain path, right? And you understand them even deeper. Mm -hmm. Then you can go to people's homes and observe, and, and you build that full picture. Right? You kind of build it with each each activity. You answer more questions, and, and you, you, you build a fuller picture. I think at the end of the day, um, one essential thing to have is to, to store all data about that customer in one database, so, so where you can connect the dots. So, because if you collect a ton of data, but it all goes to different databases that don't talk to each other, mm. you'll never realize that that's the same person. It's the same person that came to your website three times, looked around, searched for a certain thing, maybe left some feedback in the voice of the customer loop, say, yeah, I'm confused, right? Maybe then they called customer service. Um, and then if, if you don't connect those dots, then... You know, each each person in each respective group will say, "Oh, you have one hit here, we have one call here, mm. we have you know this here." Never realizing that that's the the same person, right? And if you have people that continue to visit and don't find what they're looking for and get frustrated and ask for help and never get it, and then they leave, mm. right? And that's the and then you you'll never know why the, you know, you say abandoned cart, and then you're going to send them an email, right? Why did you abandon the cart? Why did you abandon it? But maybe this person used the cart to just store things because you don't have a favorites list. Mm. But they use it as a favorites list, and they never abandon, right? So, again, the more you understand, the better you're going to be at helping people, which will translate in sales, ultimately. Yeah, and that's that's a that's a key point there in terms of translating to to value. And I think that you've been a big advocate for, you know, it's it's fine to do the research, but at the same time, we're we're a business and we need to ultimately generate sales. Um, and generating sales is is a I think a subsection of delivering value in the first instance. Um, but but say I'm a retailer, same sort of retailer, and I'm like, no, I understand my customer. Like we're doing pretty well in in our sales. I understand my customer. I know what they want. Um, how would you convince someone like this? And perhaps an example might be to talk about a win where where you were surprised. Maybe you went into some research with a hypothesis, and and actually you were surprised, and that that insight or that result generated um, ultimately revenue for the business. Yeah, I think I mean one of the this uh, favorites feature, for example, was one of the insights because we have uh, several um, you know uh, sister websites. One is uh, 6pm.com. And, um, you know, before the Amazon acquisition, Zappos had acquired that website, um, and it was, uh, it was a, you know, people loved it. They were very loyal followers. We um, pioneered our voice of the customer feedback loop on 6 p.m., and um, a lot of customers were asking for favorites list. So at the same time, right, you, you saw this, uh, you know, these... Uh, data points about what looked like cart abandonment. People put a lot of stuff in cart and never come back. Mm. So we started putting these two together and then based on the feedback, the team developed the favorites list and then uh, the inquiries became praise. Oh, great, great feature and so on. So, and that, that in itself now cleaned up the data for the data science and analytics team to have now a much better understanding of when a cart is abandoned versus it's used as a just like a storage place mm -hmm. so that, that's one practical insight and uh, how, how many just out of interest how many people were using it like what percentage of people were using it as favorites instead of actually I, I don't know I mean I can't I can't talk about specific numbers here but 
I mean, enough to like a surprising break. amount. Right. I mean, and and again, I think that's the the question of finding something and then quantifying it. It's going to vary for different businesses, but you need to verify it, and that's one of our one of our main goals now for our voice of the customer program is to validate comments and then quantify them, mm-hmm. and then see which ones line up with the business priorities and so on. So. You, you can't just, you know, if somebody says, I cannot check out, just start changing checkout because of that. You need to investigate. That's part of the, the rigor you put into to validate and so on. Interesting. Could we talk a bit about this voice of the customer program? And then, I don't know if this is related, but I saw something about nonverbal measures of emotion. Um, that also sounds super interesting. So if it's linked, talk about them together, but otherwise maybe talk about voice of the customer. Yeah, they're, they're separate, yeah. Okay. The, the other one is the non-verbal is, is, is more related to the empirical, our, our initial topic. Uh, but the Voice of the Customer program, yeah, it's, we, we started about seven years ago, and um, it was to, to really help the business listen to, to the customer and get, get that feedback. And it was a long journey. Um, it was, you know, partly long because we were in, back then in this self-organization mode, uh, which uh, was called Holacracy. You asked about this before. It was one of Tony Shea's experiments with how we work. And the idea was to not organize around people or, or roles, but more around the work. Mm. There was still hierarchy, of course, and there were still groups that they were called circles, but then you could, you could be part of many circles, not just one group. Um, and if you're passionate about a piece of work like we were about giving customers a voice, we started this group ourselves. Mm. It completely grounds up and then it got uh, associated with a high-level analytics circle and we got budget and so on. So it, it grew and um, then we found uh, somebody, um, a really awesome developer who wrote a little internal survey tool for us so we could we could capture the data securely behind our servers and not use third-party tools because data privacy and security are of utmost, is of utmost importance for us being part of Amazon, of course, mm-hmm. uh, as, as it should be for any company. Uh, so we don't store sensitive information on any third-party databases. Um, and so we developed that and we went through a series of... Um, challenges and so on. One of the, the biggest ones was to make it actionable in the sense that we heard that from our executives don't just report numbers like net promoter score drop, but why? What's the root cause? What, what can we fix? And those insights were hidden within uh, the text data, which is unstructured, like qualitative data. Mm. And then we needed a tool to structure it and to figure out what was what was hidden, the insights that were hidden in, in those mountains of text data. So to, to clarify there, you, you sent out surveys and you have basically heaps of text from those customers. Um, and you, you're like, cool, we have all this, but now what, what can we do with it and what, what is it actually useful for? Exactly. So it's there. The surveys, the the links that persist on the website, and if you if people opt in to give us feedback, they say, "I would like you to recommend Zappos to a friend or family, which is not possible." And then, how can we improve Zappos? And then they write their paragraph. It can they can say something. I love Zappos. Don't change. It's perfect. Right? Or they can say, "I love Zappos, but you know, lately I have I've been having a tough time finding the shoes I like, or something like that." And so, because of that text can be, uh, first of all, positive or negative. And then to hear the positive is nice, the praise, but then you can't do much about it other than just feel good about it. <laughs> yeah. um, but then you want to go and understand why, why these customers are frustrated, and that, that's where you, you need AI to figure it out, to parse it. And in a long paragraph, people may be talking about three different problems that, they, that then are handled by three different teams. So, for example, you know, we may be just out of stock for certain shoes size. And that doesn't make sense to send that to the technology team or to the dev team because they can't do much about it. I need to send that to the merchandising team. Mm. 
And then within technology, you have teams that handle search, that have handle checkout other areas. So that's why it, the, the comment needs to be parsed in terms of root cause analysis. So we, we were on a long journey and we, we found a really great partner, this um, startup out of England called Chattermill, that we're partnering with now that, that have a really uh, great AI, but also a very good um, DIY software that mm -hmm. lets us go in and select certain certain facets or aspects and create reports and so on. So that, um, once we started quantifying see the qualitative insights, we started gaining the, the attention of, of, of executives in a way. And I mean, they were rightfully skeptical to begin with. Mm. And then as we started quantifying, as they, as they started seeing overlapping patterns with other parts of the business, then, um, then they really started taking, paying more attention to it to the point now that when I send um, a batch of customer comments every week to the CEO to read them, and then he engages the executive team. They had several meetings where with the executive team that they started with customer comments. Right, so so that's a, that's a very nice evolution to um, to paying attention to customers. Wow, and it, it's it sounds like it's come a long way from basically an idea where you're like, hey, we should you know let's be listening to customers. And seven years later, the the CEO reads insights every week from the, that same project. I mean, mind you, this at the time when we started the project, Zappos was and still is the most customer centric company when it comes to customer service, right? Mm. It just, it was, uh, the focus was more on the, on a specific channel, which was the phones, phone lines and so on. And Zappos was still extremely customer-centric. I'm not implying that Zappos was not customer-centric at the time. It's just, we just opened up a different channel. Yeah. And on, and on opening up different channels, so phone lines, obviously very verbal and, and text is, is perhaps a subsection of being verbal as well via the surveys. Um, be interested to talk about this nonverbal measures of emotion and and I guess what that means and how you how you even elicit is it something to do with being able to elicit people's emotions while they're browsing like how does this work? No, it's 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 measuring it's it's defining and measuring emotion and that again my interest dates back to my graduate work on emotions and in my uh, my dissertation I, I measured the role of actual psychophysiological changes versus the belief that your physiology is changing on your perception of fear, for example. And then um, also the, the, there was another aspect of individual differences to the extent to which people listen to their own bodies when it comes to feeling and emotion. So, for example, there, there's this theory called self-perception theory that was started by, uh, but this was developed by William James back in the day. Mm -hmm. It was very counterintuitive. Um, he basically said that it's not... It's not that you you feel confident and then you sit sit up straight. You say you you stand up straight, and then you you project more with your voice, and then you're going to feel more confident. Mm -hmm. It's the other way around, because he he understood that the way we uh, our, our own minds interpret emotions by the way we behave. So he would say we are not we're not running because we're afraid. We you know we feel stronger fear because we run. This is quite similar to um, the insight from the, the model from California, I think you were saying, where she put on something to actually feel a certain way, not she didn't put something on because she felt that way. She engineered interactions, social interactions, mm. and, and, and indeed she would also put on and then indeed, right, because otherwise it would be, it, it, you, you, if you feel down and you dress, you know, grab your way and then you slump over, and then look down, then people are going to even avoid you even more in a way, right? So then it becomes a vicious cycle. But so that was the, the whole idea of, of the expression of emotion, that the, the our body first reacts, and then our perception, our internal states get generated, and then we perceive it as such. It's, more, it's more, much more applicable to strong emotions like fear and anger and so on. So the, the, the louder you shout, the more angry you're going to feel, for example. Mm. But in a way, facial expressions of emotions are a big part of that. And um, 
at some point they developed the technology first to capture the face facial configuration right so i think google and others developed that software that now is used for facial recognition right for law enforcement if you will all that stuff mm-hmm. for biometrics so the iphone when they say face right face lock whatever they use that software because it, it knows your features mm-hmm. Now, then another um, other scientist developed another piece of software that then codified what psychologists have uh, had studied uh, on paper, with pencil and paper, which was the Paul Ekman developed this, uh, this uh, technology called the facial, the action facial coding scheme or something like this, facial action coding scheme. Mm-hmm. He basically on a piece of paper he would see he would say are you are your your eyebrows together like this uh, is this teeth clenched right or other the mm-hmm. you know, corners of the mouth up and so if if there was a certain configuration this equaled fear another configuration equaled anger another configuration equaled disgust and so on so. The, the software developers then developed that technology to work on top of the facial recognition software. And they developed essentially software that now, um, and there, there's several companies I've worked with, a couple of them. Um, but the last company I worked with was called Realize, and it's, it's really amazing. So they developed this, uh, this platform where they recruit 300 people, and then they, they would agree to start their video camera, right, all this, uh, agree to the research and so on. Mm-hmm. Start their video camera and then they would play them a, let's say a commercial, 30 second commercial. And the, the, the software captures your facial expression second by second and it codifies it into interest and, and positive, smiling, negative, and that overlaps it with the actual frame, each frame of the, the video. Mm. So at the end, they basically can measure how effective that ad was. You know, did people get it? Were they confused? Did they like it? Did they smile? Um, if it was funny, did they cry? If it was sad, and so on. So that wow. that is the technology that 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 captures that. When you talked about uh, phone calls, there is technology to capture emotion through the voice. The voice carries a lot of emotion. That's all huge data, right? I mean, if, if you put that at scale, then um, you have, we're talking about enormous data, right? Not big data, but humongous data. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Wow. Um, oh, interesting. That's so cool. Uh, so I guess another, another place you would use that would be, I mean, it doesn't just have to be ads. You could you could have people doing that while they're like browsing your website and seeing, matching right. that to where they are and seeing perhaps where frustrations right. on the website are. Exactly, I, exactly. So that's that can be applied. Of course, the, now the emotions have to be appropriate for that experience, because you, you cannot apply Paul Ekman's scheme directly, right? That's, if, if you're going shopping for shoes, most likely you're not going to experience fear, not going to experience disgust, right? I mean, the same way that you see the something really disgusting and you go like that make the face of disgust right yeah hopefully not right i mean let's <laughs> you know the, these uh shopping experiences are now pretty standard so um but i think it's it you should modify it to include confusion to include uh, delight surprise in a nice way or surprise in a bad way um and it's it's really that that is the next to me the, and the next frontier um, that of course again requires a lot of bandwidth because imagine the data you collect for 30 second commercial well now if you're browsing for like five ten minutes that that kind of data really adds up hundred mm, percent um, i I was listening to one of your one of your talks and I really like the analogy of um, the elephant and and the blind men and how that um, how that re- uh, applies to business and companies and, and I guess teams within companies. Could you, could you tell us that story? Um, and yeah. And then how it relates to companies and, 
I, I found it to be very potent. I think people will enjoy it. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, first of all, thank you for doing all your homework and, and <laughs> listening to my thoughts. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I use it as, again, as an analogy of, of uh, silos within, uh, within companies. Uh, and the story, the original story on back, dates back to Sanskrit times and, uh, and so on. And the story was that uh, in this uh, small village, uh, remote village, um, where they had never seen an elephant, this, this strange animal came and, uh, and then the, the leader of that village sent uh, five, well, at the time, you know, men, let's say. It was not a very kind of diverse or politically correct story back in the day. <laughs> um, but five uh, men that happened to be blind to go and figure out what the animal was and come back. And so they went and each used the, 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 the faculties that they had, uh, which was touch and so on and hearing. And, uh, but they mostly used touch and each person touched a certain part of the animal. And they came back and when, uh, when the head of the village, let's say, asked them, so what's an elephant? Uh, the person who touched the trunk said, well, an elephant is like a big tree. And then the person who touched the body said, no, no, you're completely wrong. It's, uh, it's like a wall. And then another person who touched the tusk is like, no, 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 you both are wrong. It's like a spear. So what are you mm -hmm. talking about? And so, of course, you, you understand there was no agreement. And that's because they didn't see the full picture. They couldn't see the full picture. So that's analogy I then translate to companies that have very strict uh, silos and like a very uh, strict org chart where different parts of the company don't communicate necessarily. And if you, put, if you um, talk about customer research, for example, and you have these different organizations with their own budgets, with their own teams, their own agendas, the the, re the customer researcher or the market researcher that researches the market and the effectiveness of marketing materials may not talk to the product researcher who researches the actual product and the usability of the product. Then you may have a product and customer service and so on. Uh, you may have a research and customer service. And when you ask them who is the customer, then all those researchers may not agree. Right? They may say a customer is somebody who clicks on our ads, or the other one is like, a customer is somebody who uses the product in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Or a customer is somebody who has these needs and wants, and they don't, they don't agree on who the customer is. Um, so that, that, that highlights the need to break down those silos. And, and even if you have a very structured and siloed organization, in back in the day, you know, at Zappos, you know, Tony Shea kind of did away with an org, with the org chart, but that's because it's kind of a more of a radical, innovative retrospect. But even if you can do away with the with the org chart, then at least you can do things like create a, maybe like a customer council that you gather stakeholders throughout the company that are customer facing and sit sit and, and discuss who is the customer and. When you plan the research, then maybe you pull your resources together, and then you're going to be much more efficient. You're going to maybe do one study and inform five groups within the company. Mm. And, and then perhaps the, the change will also be faster because the change perhaps requires coordination across all these across all these um, different exactly. silos as well. Exactly. So it, to me, it can be more efficient in terms of resources. I mean, how many times in big companies there's a report by the marketing group and, uh, and then the product researcher like, hey, you know, damn, I, I wish I knew you were doing this survey. I, I get some questions. So now they have to do their own questions with a different group of customers. Then you cannot connect the dots and so on. So uh, that's, uh, that can be a problem. Mm, for sure. Um, we're probably coming towards the end of, of our um, of our conversation, but there's there's a few questions I like to ask, and um, I guess what one would be, what what's some low hanging fruit that you you see again? Well, let's talk about that retailer. You've got about thirty staff in head office, doing somewhere between ten to fifty million. Um, what's some low hanging fruit in customer research or um, market research which they could go off and win really easily again? 
perhaps they haven't done too much of the customer research and and maybe it is starting something like this customer council but yeah what would be what would be like the first thing you're like hey if you did this it wouldn't take a lot of time and it would actually be very valuable what would that be I, mean, I would say it's uh, probably sitting down as an organization and having the different stakeholders and, and having this discussion of how well do we know our customers and how well and, and a lot of companies now have um, really um, you know rigorous data collection and so on on the quantitative side um, but then have this conversation around let's let's understand the why behind the what so yeah so ha having that conversation and then really um, from that point on understanding what the gaps are um, another piece of advice I would say is um, to start with the business objectives um, and research and then translate those into research questions and then and only then uh, decide on the methods because many times companies that um, are customer-centric or want to be customer-centric start with let's do a focus group yeah? and then the focus group now is kind of the it has become somewhat of a laughing stock in, in a lot of circles. I mean, it used to be the research method back in the day of uh, the medicine, medicine Avenue, you know, the Medman and so on, Medman era uh, of advertising. The focus groups were really now they make fun of focus groups on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, or to say, let's do a survey. And then others will start criticizing the survey. Surveys are not good. It's like criticizing, start saying, saying, I want to do, um, you know, I want to do a, a household project, and I'll start with a screwdriver. And then... <laughs> it's like, what does that even mean? Like, what are you trying to do, right? And then you say, then, then somebody says, hey, a screwdriver is terrible for painting walls. And then start criticizing the screwdriver. And then you get into this conversation that's really pointless. Mm. If you start with the what and then figure out the how, I think that that's the that's the way to go. Nice. And and in terms of it's the other side of that question is what are things that you you see people doing wrong in customer research? And it's like a I'm sure there there would be some some common thing which you're like why do people do it this way? They shouldn't. So what what would be something like that? I mean, yeah. To to reiterate, starting with the method would be. Definitely not yeah. the best. Um, then, so that's in terms of data collection. Then if you don't store, if you don't connect the dots, if you don't store the data in the right, in, in the right format, then or in the right database to, to connect all the dots, then of course you won't be able to do the, the right analysis, right? Because to do, for example, if, if you ask, if you want to ask, 10 different questions of, a cust of your customer base. And you say, you know, that 10 questions is too long of a survey. So I'll ask, uh, I'll do two surveys with five questions each. Then it comes back then. Of course, you can do the, the descriptive statistics on those five and five questions, and they're going to be valid. But you won't be able to connect the answers to a question from one survey to the answers to the questions of the other surveys. So. Mm. Because to to be able to do those analytics, you need to have the same person answer all the questions. Then, then over ten, you know, one thousand or two thousand people, you start seeing the patterns, right? Because because the same person, um, you can do all the you know the correlations and the the cross tabs and all the statistical analysis, the chi square and so on. Only if if the same cohort took this the survey, right? So mm -hmm. I mean, these are we're going into like tactical tactical things, but um, uh, I, I think and then uh, one of the most important things is to close the loop with the customer, and if you get a lot of feedback from them, then first of all thank them because mm -hmm. that that feedback is a gift, and then make sure that you take it seriously and make some changes based on that. Closing the loop, important. Got it. Um, and one of my final questions will be around resources. And this is kind of per 
kind of a personal gain because I'm I'm fascinated by psychology as well and mm-hmm. and one of my favorite books is influenced by um Caldini um mm-hmm. and then his his next book Persuasion which was also fascinating um I have seen your I don't know how recent it was but the post with all the links there were some TED talks in there and and some oh. other things and I'll link to that in 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 the show notes for this um but are there any particular books or resources you would recommend for people um, who are getting into it and you're like, you know, like top three books for, for people interested in, in psychology and, and perhaps even how that applies to customer research? Yeah, I mean, it's um, off the top of my head. I mean, I, I, I used to study the, the source for all the, the psychology and all research from the... From oh, like the, the actual PhD all, papers? All the research, right? Uh, and then some people, I mean, like Robert Cialdini, he's very good at popularizing it. But then you have other people like Malcolm Gladwell who take all of that and make it really engaging and, and really fun. Mm. Um, so any Malcolm Gladwell's of uh, Malcolm Gladwell's books, um, there's um, one person that I really enjoy um, his his talks. Uh, it's called Rory Sutherland. He's, uh, he, he talks about behavioral economics and uh, he's a uh, he, he is in advertising, but he acknowledges the role of psychology, and he he has great examples. I mean, one of his things is, and speaking of uh, of resources, he says a lot of a lot of issues can be fixed uh, paying attention to the detail, not spending a lot of money, mm-hmm. but but really understanding the motivation of customers and then having little the right tweaks, not like huge, you know very expensive projects. Like one of his examples is how many, when there's merger between two companies that's worth billions of dollars, you, how many of the customers really feel the, the impact? Like probably zero, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's this huge deal, but but when you go and maybe do a small tweak that really customers care about that changes their lives, then it's going to be Interesting. Super cool. Wow, that was. I think that's everything I had to to cover. Is is there anything else you think we we should have talked about, but but didn't? No, oh, great questions. Thank you. So uh, you did your homework. Awesome. Thank you very much. Um, well, thank you, Alex, for joining me. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll link to everything in in the show notes, and then people can follow up there. And and if people want to connect with you, LinkedIn is that the best place for them to do so? All the best places. Awesome. All right. Cheers, Alex. Thank you, Ang. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Strutfit Show. I've been your host, Ang Naya. And if you enjoyed it, if you found some parts where you were like, hmm, this has added some value to my life, then please share it with a few other people that you think would also value this information or that snippet. And when they like it as much as you did, I'm sure they'll thank you. If you're interested in what we're doing at Strutfit, head to our website at www.strut.fit to learn more and get in touch with us. If you want to get in contact with me directly, you can reach me at ang at strut.fit. All right, that's all folks. Till next time, take care.